Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Hope you had a nice lunch. And it's a great pleasure to introduce our third panel for this conference. I am Sara Marzagora, and I am a lecturer, which is equivalent to assistant professor at King's College London. I work in comparative literature and intellectual history in uh, Amharic in the first half of the 20th century. Um, and uh, my role here is just to be a chair, uh, but it's really a pleasure to be here. And I would like to thank the wonderful organizers uh, for all the work that they've done, uh, bringing people together and then uh, uh, all the work with the IT accommodation. It must have been a lot of work. We are very appreciative of all of your efforts and thank you so much for the hospitality again. Um, so our third panel, we will have the first two speakers first, and then uh, there will be a coffee and tea break. And then we will have our last uh, speaker for this panel and then I'll invite all of the speakers together to the table for a final panel discussion. So I'll call the speakers individually first. Uh, and our first speaker is Nilan Srivastava, who's professor of postcolonial and world literature at Newcastle University. She's interested in the cultural history of Italian imperialism, South Asian literature, anti-colonial and liberationist writing. She's worked in particular on Antonio Gramsci and Franz Fanon and postcolonial print cultures. And today she's presenting a paper that is titled Italian Colonialism and Orientalism in Ethiopia. Thank you very much, Nilam, please. Oh, and just, uh, just another point for the Q&A, we will invite uh, um, whoever wants to ask questions to come here to the podium and speak in this microphone for IP reasons. Uh, so just in case uh, you want to prepare questions for later, you will have to come and ask them here. So just a forewarning, <laughs> please. Well, first of all, thanks so much to Jonathan and Leah for enabling this amazing conference. And I'm very honored, I feel very honored to be speaking here and to, um, to, and to have been able to accept the invitation. Um, so this paper examines some, some, some aspects of Italy's epistemological, political, and cultural relationship with Ethiopia in the 20th century, and how it can be brought to bear to a discussion around the authorship of Da Hatata Zara Jacob, with a special reference to the figure of Carlo Conti Rossini, the Italian Ethiopianist who wrote an influential refutation of its attribution to the 17th century Ethiopian monk, Zara Jacob. I should immediately declare my limitations. I am not an Ethiopianist and I'm not familiar with the language in which the text is written. My background is in literary studies. I'm based in an English department and my area of specialism is Italian colonialism and 20th century post-colonial literature. So my considerations here will focus on the ideological and epistemological and paradigmatic assumptions that were likely to underpin the approach of Italy's most famous scholar of Ethiopian history to the authenticity of what he calls a heretical text. As Isatum um, Bod, sorry, I'm not pronouncing this right, and Anais Beyond remark, as much as a study of the text itself, therefore, it is a matter of analyzing the mechanisms at work in the production of an academic discourse, be it in history, philology, philosophy, or in the context of research policy. All of these discourses construct a vision of the world in which this text plays a role, either through its existence or through the denial of its existence. The history and indeed understanding of the text reception by Conti Rossini, a prominent 20th century Orientalist and Ethiopianist, can be traced to the origins of the Italian colonial enterprise in the Horn of Africa and its discursive ideological justifications that rested on the appropriation of knowledge about Ethiopia and surrounding region. In other words, Conti de Rossini's argument 
that the text was actually a forgery by Giusto d'Urbino, the 19th century Italian Capuchin monk who purportedly discovered the text, can be seen to rest on Conti Rossini's civilizational worldview, which he projected onto his understanding of Ethiopian literature and philosophy. But in order to understand the reasoning that led to his interpretation of the text in this way, we need to take a step back and examine the histories of Italy's colonial involvement in East Africa. So this is a map, um, I don't know how visible it is to you, um, of Italy's colonial territories in 1936. And at that point in time, Ethiopia was under Italian domination. As Marco Di Michelis observes, it, official Italian interest in the region was preceded by missionary interest comprised of Italian clergy, with Jesuit missions headed by the apostolic Nuncius Massaia in the 1830s and 1840s. The Catholic Church's attempts to establish a relationship with Ethiopia and de facto a political control over its Ethiopian rulers was linked, of course, to its being a Christian empire. And Italian missionaries had been in the regions since uh, the 15th and 16th centuries. Giusto Durbino, the discoverer of the Hatata manuscript, was part of this, Jewish, of this Jesuit mission that had intended to penetrate the Oromo territory and convert the local population to Catholicism. But this kind of, mi of missionary penetration was formally, though perhaps not epistemologically distinct from the geographical and political ambitions that Italy began to project onto the Horn of Africa very soon after Italy became a unified nation in 1861. Ignazio Antinori led the first major Italian geographical exploration of the Horn of Africa in 1876. And later, Antinori became the founder of the Società Geografica Italiana, the Italian Geographical Society. Arguably, Antinori's trip, again, I don't know how visible it is. I'm sorry, that might be a bit faint. But so the first explorations of the Horn of Africa on the part of the Italian nation start in the 1870s, 1880s. And Antinori's trip, which was exploration, uh, wasn't yet a colonial mission, but it lays the basis for colonial ventures later on. So it went quickly from geographical exploration to full-blown colonization. Now, the Italian case presents some unique and distinct characteristics compared to the far more established liberal empires of Britain and France, which were based in stronger and older sense of national unity. Italy, as a rather belated newcomer to the imperialist stage, had achieved national unification only in 1861. So barely 20 years after unification, Italy begins an expansionist policy in East Africa. And of course, it's linked to um, the scramble for Africa that gets sort of ratified with the Berlin Congress in 1886. These African wars that the um, Italians started um, sat uneasily with the memory of the Risorgimento and with those values of national self-determination associated with the central event of Italian history. So Italy's first colony, as you can see maybe from the slide, is 1891, Eritrea, um, and after the Greek name of the Red Sea on which it bordered. And soon afterwards, the Italian government began outlining ground grandiose plans to conquer or at least subdue the Ethiopian empire, the only state in Africa that had not been taken over by a European power in the 1885, sorry, um, scramble for Africa. Francesco Crispi was prime minister of Italy at this point in time, and despite being a liberal, has gone down in history for being the most imperialist statement in the early period after unification. Crispi and the imperialist lobby in the Italian parliament vastly underestimated the military strength of Emperor Menelik II, ruler of late 19th century Ethiopia. The Italians considered the Ethiopians, and I apologize because in the course of this talk, I will be using, uh, I will be sort of citing, um, I guess, 
offensive and maybe upsetting terms with which Italians described Ethiopians in the past. So I'm sorry about that, but it is to give some historical context, they considered the Ethiopians to be uncivilized and thus not working, not worth bringing out extra troops for. They had no doubts at all that in 1890s they would conquer Ethiopia. And of course, this wasn't true. They were defeated by the Ethiopians in open battle in 1896 at the Battle of Adwa. It was a humiliating defeat for Italy. And it also meant that Crispi had to resign and it signaled the end of Italy's participation in the scramble for Africa. At the end of the 19th century, the debate about the morality of empire revolved around the issue of civilization, a sticking point that would emerge at another crucial moment of imperial crisis, the 1930s. Critics of colonialism from right and left argued that Italy was in dire need of a civilizing mission itself, 60% illiteracy, a widespread lack of hygiene, a corrupt political class. The nation was hardly in the position to act as a guiding light for colonized subjects. Thus the debate around Italy's level of civilization, as well as its uncertain standing among other European nations was at the heart of oppositions between colonialists and anti-colonialists and it didn't map onto left-right divisions. There was also an almost complete ignorance of the East African regions and their political organization. Adwa was the first time that a European army had been defeated in battle by an African army in modern history. And that meant that Italy had to uh, halt imperial expansion. So Italy became symbolic of a much bigger defeat. Um, it had proved, sorry, it had failed to prove to the rest of the world that it was an international state actor that could pursue a colonial policy of prestige and that it could compete with other European nations in spreading the civilizing mission to Africa. And it was to haunt the Italian colonial uh, ruling class for many years afterwards. The Battle of Adwa later became an important pretext in fascist propaganda for the invasion of Ethiopia in 1935, since it was viewed as a stain on the honor of the nation which needed to be avenged. So let's turn to 1935. So again, sort of slight, small, short timeline of Italian colonial ventures. Um, this is when, so this is a few year, quite a few years now since Mussolini has come to power and he's planning his invasion of the sovereign state Ethiopia, a member of the League of Nations. Um, in 1911, Italy had conquered Libya and it's worth remembering the, um, the, the, the huge toll that Italian colonialism had on African populations. So the historian Angelo del Bocca um, calculates that about 400,000 people died in the course of Italy's colonial project. So it was a short-lived empire, but very bloody and very violent. Soon after coming to power in 1922, Mussolini made Italy's imperialist identity a cornerstone of his policy through a massive use of propaganda. So um, I think very important in this thinking around Conti Rossini's role here is that role of that use of propaganda that it, the Italian empire and the Italian fascist regime really worked hard to establish their qualifications for um, invading Ethiopia. And there, they, they managed to create quite a bit of consensus around the invasion. So Mussolini's um, biggest popularity was at the time in which he declared Italy to have become an empire um, and had conquered Ethiopia. Now, what's interesting throughout this uh, propaganda piece is, is the way in which Italians um, progressively racialize Ethiopians. So prior to the invasion, and this again, like refers to that philological tradition to which, and um, historical tradition to which Conti Rossini belongs, Italians did not consider Ethiopians to be exclusively black, 
but either white or of Semitic descent. Um, they quote an extensive ethnic scale. So they, they were, Italian anthropologists did not, uh, prior to the 1930s, did not see Ethiopians as black. But in the run-up to the invasion, and this is an argument that David Forgatch um, explores, Italians worked hard together with anthropologists and colonial officers to quote blacken Ethiopians and other East Africans in order to portray them as racially inferior and thus to lend further justification to their conquest. So this is a very, um, you know, quite a famous cover of an Italian um, racial publication, racist publication that came out in 1938. And here you see the, the sort of the Roman sword that is dividing the Roman statue, the Roman race from the Semitic race and the African race. And again, I apologize for the offensiveness of this image, but um, it's to explain, this is a recent invention. It's a recent like transformation of the ways in which Italians um, imagined or conceived of Ethiopians. And it was very strategic. So this historical background, I think, is important for when we try to make, it guides us in trying to make sense of Conti Rossini's influential interpretation of the Hatata and the way it underpinned his own intellectual and disciplinary makeup that informed his scholarship on Ethiopia. I'm sorry, I'm not sure. So that's just the name Conti Rossini on top, yeah. Um, he was an Ethiopianist and Orientalist who worked as a civil servant and colonial administrator in the new Italian colony of Eritrea from 1899 to 1903. Nicola Camilleri and Valentino Fusaro in a recent article rightly emphasized this important connection between Conti Rossini's experience of colonial governance and his scholarship on Ethiopia. He defined himself as a historian philologist, given his ability to cross disciplinary boundaries. Camilleri and Fusaro regard him as what they call a scholar functionary a term that underlines the central nexus between colonialism and the organization of knowledge about the conquered territory. He was a major scholar of Eritrean customary laws. And Camilleri and Fusaro argued that his work contributed to the official construction of ethno-anthropological discourse in and about the Italian colonies in the Horn of Africa. Um, and Camilleri quotes Conti Rossini himself on that importance of knowing Ethiopians for colonial government governance. And this is obviously, um, you know, quite central to colonial policy to facilitate the quote, knowledge of the Ethiopian was this fun functional for the new unfortunate pioneers of the new Italian power. And this is quoting directly from Conti Rossini to, to shape the perceptions of the newly arrived colonizers towards their colonial subjects. So Conti Rossini arrives in the new colony between 1898 and um, 1903 in the founding period of the civil administration. Gianni Dore's recent bio of him traces the figure of a rigorous and severe scholar whose knowledge of and passion for Ethiopia ill reconciled with his colonial duties. He found the newly established city of Asmara, at the time a small town with dark alleys and few modern buildings, lamentable both for its urban and its moral shortcomings. While living there, he was attacked by an Eritrean as he walked through the market late at night and complained a lot to the colonial administration that his attacker had not been charged with assault. He wasn't easy to get along with, and apparently many people were glad to see him leave. Um, the governor of the colony, Ferdinando Martini, remarked in 1903 in a letter to a colleague, Conti Rossini is leaving Asmara. We are separating after almost four years with regret. The functionary is precious for his acuteness, his hard work, and his erudition, but he is touchy and quick to anger. And so he was much disliked by some in the colony, which he knows in its history, customs, and languages probably better than any other European who lives there but it will be hard for me to replace him with another employee as honest, 
hardworking and cultured as him. But if he had stayed here longer, he would have created lots of problems for me. It's illuminating to have this perspective on Conti Rossini's difficult personal character to contrast with the undoubted dominance he has enjoyed in the field of Ethiopian studies, partly serving perhaps to debunk that aura of authority that has been bestowed upon him, but also partly to highlight how his experience of colonial administration impacted on his scholarly formation. What is striking about Martini's assessment of him is how deeply he Conti Rossini was invested in Italy's colonial project, both at a material and intellectual level. As the Africanist Terence Ranger remarks, the most far-reaching inventions of tradition in colonial Africa took place when the Europeans believed themselves to be respecting age-old African custom, what were called customary law, customary land rights, customary political structure, all things that Conti Rossini studied, and so on, were in fact all invented by colonial codification. In other words, Conti Rossini, argues Camilleri, was responsible for, quote, fixing Eritrean customary law and written statutes and contributed to the colonial construction of putatively pre-colonial and thus traditional categories. On his return to Italy from Eritrea in, in uh, 1903, Conti Rossini continued to develop his scholarly career, publishing a huge body of work on Eritrea and Ethiopia and consolidating his reputation as a foremost Ethiopianist. But he also con continued his colonial career from 1913 to 1915, he was general secretary for civil and political affairs in Italian Tripolitania. So we see that migration of colonial functionaries across the Italian empire that um, sort of guarantees um, a shared pool of um, resources and knowledge about colonial administration. He became a renowned academic holding the chair of history and languages of Abyssinia at the University of Rome from 1919 until his death in 1949 and became a member of Italy's most important scholarly association, the Accademia Reale dei Nincei, the equivalent of the Royal Society. He founded the prominent journal Rassegna di Studi Etiopici in 1941, which is still published to this day. In his editorial to the first issue of the journal, he, reiter he reiterated that Italy remained faithful to her civilizing mission in East Africa, thus underscoring how deeply compromised his Ethiopian scholarship was by colonial discourse. As Camilleri and Fusari note, the interconnection between politics and science helps us understand better Conti Rossini's work in its historical context, a context that pursued the civilization of African subjects perpetrating crimes and acts of violence, such as the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. Conti Rossini's reading of Ethiopian society and culture become more explicitly racist with the advent of fascism and the, and the invasion. His compromised position with the regime is most clearly articulated in his September 1935 article published in an influential and highly prestigious Italian cultural journal, La Nuova Antologia where major intellectuals and writers often contributed pieces. The article was entitled, L'Ethiopia è incapace di progresso civile. Ethiopia is incapable of civilized progress and was written as a scholarly justification for the invasion that would happen only a month later. His argument rehearsed a series of standard racist interpretations of Ethiopian inferiority that had become current around the time of the invasion. For a long time, European scholars had elevated Ethiopia above other African countries for having an ancient written tradition related to religion that distinguished it from other cultures of sub-Saharan Africa. 
But Conti Rossini sought to downplay even the supposed index of progress represented by writing by saying that Ethiopian writing had remained static and virtually unchanged since the fourth century. Throughout the whole piece, Conti Rossini paints a picture of Ethiopia in terms of lack, whose culture is derivative and incapable of autonomous evolution and dependent on foreign influence in order to progress. He briefly mentions the Hatata in this 1935 piece as the only philosophical text that was the, the gem of Abyssinian literature was demonstrated by myself to be a falsification by an Italian monk who through an Ethiopian form vented his feelings exacerbated by the form, by the isolation of his mission and by his bitter religious skepticism. He is scathing about the Kene, Ethiopian liturgical poetry, denouncing it as nebulous and deliberately obscure. He spent, he dwells much and, um, he identifies two reasons for Ethiopia's inability to achieve cultural progress. The first he says is ethnic. And here Conti Rossini is reprising that ideological process of blackening Ethiopians um, in order to give racial justification for the, for the invasion. He says that, despite speaking Semitic languages, Abyssinians are not Semitic but quote, undoubtedly of Cushitic race. Now, no branch of this race, he says, from the origins of the world up to this day, has been able to elaborate a satisfactory level of civilization on their own. He dwells much on supposed Ethiopian savagery and barbarism, again, linked to what he sees as their pursuit of war and banditry through the ages, again, to underscore the need for Italian intervention to bring civilization to the country. And he mentions atrocities um, committed by, uh, by Ethiopian troops in the course of their wars. He mentions the fact that slavery is still practiced in the country and um, even the fact that they were Christians couldn't redeem them. And I think it's interesting to think about what the, the justifications he's using, the, the, the fact, oh, Ethiopia still has slaves, Ethiopia use, um, perpetrates atrocities with these images from contemporary pro fascist or well, pro pro Italian fascist publications denouncing um, the bar, quote, uh, supposed barbarity of Haile Selassie's empire. So these images of Ethiopian slaves whose hands have been cut off, um, the idea that when Italy would come, Ethiopians would begin to be educated, which wasn't true by the way, because they, they were actually um, explicitly preventing Italian, um, Ethiopians from gaining access to education. So just to return to um, the quote from his piece from 1935, he concludes with uh, an explicit justification for the invasion. We are induced to believe that only a constant, wise, solid external intervention could durably correct and eliminate contrary factors, extract the good qualities from the Abyssinian population currently weighed down by the negative ones and to obtain from the country what civilization and the rest of the world has a right to demand. Now th this, um, this, this quite explicit ideo ideological justification for the invasion was uh, part of the effort that the fascist government had made um, uh, on academics and scientists to provide a scientific and rational basis for the invasion. In 1934, at the National Council for Research, the president, Guglielmo Marconi, had invited Italian science to mobilize for the aim of building an empire. And so, as Roberto Maiocchi recalls, 
the most responsive scientists and academics to the regime's call were those who had already some experience in the colonies and were now taking the new climate as a good chance to spread the public recognition of their work. So for example, Eduardo Zavattari, who was an expert in biology of the colonies, um, he stressed the primary importance of scientific research for achieving the colonial conquest. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's possible to contextualize Conti Rossini's um, you know, compromise position with the regime also in a way to say, well, I'm an expert on Ethiopia and I can lend my authority to that um, colonial conquest. So was, I guess the question that comes out of this is, was Conti Rossini's explicitly racializing account of Ethiopian history more of a contingent and strategic stance than a long-held belief? And to some extent, perhaps, his reputation of the Hatata seems to answer no. In fact, it was a long-held belief. It wasn't just strategic. Because his refutation of the text, of the authorship of the text, precedes the invasion and is, of course, from 1913 and then 1920. A careful reading of the refutation reveals striking connections with his later propaganda piece published in the Norm Anthologia and unveils a clearly orientalist interpretation of Ethiopia's social and cultural, societal and cultural evolution. Oh, this is another image from fascist propaganda at the time um, that Ethiopians were made to do the Roman salute. So at the beginning of the, um, the piece that has been translated by Lea, um, ideas like that of like those of Sarah Jacob are not of the sort which one would have expected in Ethiopia, where blind faith and the convoluted Byzantinism of interpretations of scripture seem to place an insurmountable black barrier against free thinking, who's blossoming there we could scarcely imagine. So he did not consider it to be probable for the Hatata to be a work of Ethiopian philosophy because it did not fit his teleological view of how thought developed across the ages. And this was clearly based on a Eurocentric model of philosophical development that he applied uncritically, uncritically to the text. And arguably perhaps has been made invisible due to Conti Rossini's influence in the field. This of course does not in itself prove that the text um, was authentic, but it does prove that his interpretation is profoundly shaped by the paradigmatic preconceptions he applies to his reading of it. Perhaps it is time to provincialize Conti Rossini and his monopoly over the field. In the text, he argues that, it, of course, it was a forgery by Giusto Durbino. And he, he says, characteristic of Father Giusto was his enthusiastic attachment to Abyssinia and his fervent love for the Ethiopian language. Abyssinia is better than Europe. Bejender is worth more than Italy, he wrote on 17th February, 1850 from Gondar. And on 26 October, he wrote from Ifag, Abyssinia is superior to Italy in barbarism and in humanity and despotism and in freedom. So Father Giusto, according to Conti Rossini here is articulating an opposite position to that of, of Conti Rossini himself. Where the latter, where Conti Rossini ascribes savagery and despotism to Ethiopia, Padre Giusto also remembers humanity and freedom. And perhaps these statements helped to convince Conti Rossini that Father Giusto was the actual author of the manuscript, that he was so enamored of Ethiopia that he chose to express himself in its literary form and language to convey his innermost feelings of dissatisfaction with the monastic order he was attached to and with the institutionalized religious system he was a member of. The second reason that he gives for Father Giusto being the author of the manuscript is because he relies on witnesses and informants in Ethiopia who tell him that the text had actually been written by Father Padre Giusto. So 
Um, I won't read out this quote, but um, that Kontirosin is giving evidence that he has spoken to people in Ethiopia who say that the text was not by, um, by Zara Yaakov. The third reason he gives for believing the text was a forgery rests on Dipesh Chakrabarti's idea that the colonizer has always written the history of the colonized, that history is not perceived to exist before colonialism. And the notion is relevant when, when you try to understand how Conti Rossini reached his conclusion that the text was a 19th century Italian forgery. Um, the, the need perhaps to think about history as a discipline that, that should be decolonized. And just to, I'd like to spend a little bit of time on Chakrabarti because I was reminded of his thinking around provincializing history, um, provincializing Europe when I was reading um, Conti Rossini. Chakrabarti in this, in this quite influential book, Provincializing Europe, which I'm sure most of you will be familiar with, examines that, that, delve, the del, that developmental narrative that has been imposed upon the interpretation of India. Chakrabarti is a, a historian of India. Superimposing Western historiographical models onto the past of India is an imperialist act in and of itself and is complicit in disturbing ways with the preconceptions and presuppositions of development studies, i.e. that third world countries are supposedly following the developmental schema of European nations. Chakrabarti engages with the ways in which we study concepts of political modernity when applied to the so-called third world. And it, he argues that it is impossible to speak of these concepts without invoking the intellectual and theological traditions of Europe. So, um, I mean, this, to some extent, this is a very familiar argument nowadays um, that social scientists and historians tend to engage exclusively with the Western intellectual and historiographical tradition without attempting to historicize their thought to place it within a specifically European context. And um, he argues that if we pay closer attention to the histories of non-European regions, two fundamental concepts are challenged, historicism, the idea that to understand anything, it has to be seen both as a unity and in its historical development, and of course, European universalism, the, the Europe that modern imperialism and third world nationalism have by their collaborative venture and violence made universal. So Chakrabarti is critiquing that dominant stagist version of history, ranging from simple evolutionary schemas to sophisticated understandings of uneven development. And Chakrabarti is thinking specifically about India, that Western modes of historical writing are not enough to understand and record India's past, too much premise on Western historical notions of time, linearity, and progress. And of course, he's arguing for the need of, of recuperating indigenous modes of recording the past, but also, of course, uh, re recuperating modes of, re of achieving different forms of temporality. So it is relevant to think about Chakrabarti's call to decolonize and provincialize Indian history, because in a way it could be argued and that Ethiopian studies in Italy were premised along this Orientalist model of philology. Um, as Marco de Michelis has argued, Italian Orientalism and European Orientalism in general have placed Ethiopian studies less within an anthropological context and more within history and philology, reutilizing the same method of analysis as that which is applied to the Near and Middle East. And this is the sense one gets from some of Contirosini's writings as the, he's thinking of Ethiopia along a philological model more than an anthropological one, though of course those two dimensions overlap. Now I'd like to, I'm gonna be wrapping up soon. So um, I'd like to end this, um, these reflections on Conti Rossini and his, you know, I guess uh, 
implication in the Western colonial project with a sort of contrasting figure. And again, a figure that will be familiar to many of you, Sylvia Pankhurst, um, an activist who spent most of her life defending and supporting Ethiopia against the ideological and material attacks of Italy. Her 1955 Ethiopia cultural history was, dis was destined for popular audience. And she wrote a chapter on, she dedicates an entire chapter of the book to the Hadatha. But there is no trace in her book that the uh, text was a forgery, any awareness that the text had been denounced as a forgery. Pankhurst's writings on Ethiopia were all devoted to restoring and enhancing its civilizational image in the context of hostile Italian propaganda around the time of the invasion. The broadsheet she produced to support Ethiopia, New Times and Ethiopia News, carried frequent articles about the significance of Ethiopian cultural tradition, highlighting its long history, its development of an autonomous thought, and its embrace of progress through Haile Selassie's concerted efforts to make Ethiopia into a modern country. Um, so in an opposite move to Ethiopia's, to Conti Rossini and writing about 30, you know, around the same period, she finds the Hatata a shining example of Ethiopia's cultural originality and global significance due to the forward thinking ideas contained in Zeta Yacoub's thought. Um, these again are examples from her um, pamphlet um, that the image of Ethiopians that she was projecting onto a global audience um, remain um, sort of, I feel, understudied. So in Ethiopia, a cultural history, um, I've, I've included some quotes in the handout. Again, they're quite faint and maybe hard to, hard to read, but it's quite interesting that she's almost reversing Conti Rossini's teleological reading of that text and saying, in fact, Zara Yacoub was a forerunner of the modern thinkers who declared the essential unity of all religions. Um, and it has been said of him that at the time of the Third Years' War, he uttered thoughts which did not become current in Europe till the rationalist period in the 18th century. So she's saying he came first. Um, and of course, this is a popular history. She's not a philologist. Uh, Pankhurst um, you know, was a lifelong committed activist for it to Ethiopia. She died in Ethiopia and she was a very good friend of Haile Selassie. So there are other forms of you know, ideological connections there that can be explored. Towards the end of the chapter that she dedicates to Zara Jacob, Pankhurst advances an explanation of why this text might have left no traces of its reception or dissemination at the time of its writing. She explains that Zara Jacob did not disclose to their neighbors that his belief was somewhat different from his own. Had he done so in that disturbed and distracted period when Ethiopia was torn by religious factions, some of them, at least some of them would, he feared, have persecuted them. So Pankhurst's belief in the cultural autonomy and self-development of Ethiopia rested on her former activism in favor of the country and her close connections to the Ethiopian royal family and to many Ethiopians. What is striking about her publications is that debate around civilization and barbarity. So this is, I promise you, the last slide. Um, this debate around civilization of Italy versus Ethiopia or vice versa gains particular prominence in a letter by an Ethiopian student that she published in her broadsheet in 1937. In this essay, the student not only declares Ethiopian sympathy for Spain, but also rejects the suggestion that it is more worthy to suspain, uh, support Spain instead of Ethiopia because um, he then embarks on, a, on, on a, an exploration of what civilization means is it really true that Africa has nothing to offer civilization? He argues that on the contrary, Ethiopia is a civilization independent of longstanding, capable of evolving. His analysis of Italy is perceptive. 
he, re he recognizes that it is a relatively new modern nation whose progress only began in the late 19th century. The Ethiopian student whose name remains unknown proceeds to give a new definition of civilization. And he says, civilization is the consciousness of the universality of the human race. The barbarians are those people who only believe in the irrational power of their own particular race. The civilized are those people who believe in universal principles. So to conclude, Conti Rossini's colonial historicism denied organic evolution to Ethiopian culture and thus laid epistemological basis for his argument that the Hatata was a forgery. To what extent this hypothesis is the product of his own biases will never be known, but some conclusions can be drawn. Outside of the field of Ethiopian studies in which his interpretation became influential, in the field of anti-colonial activism, Pankhurst sought to prove the opposite, that indeed Zara Yaakov was a prime example of that civilization that was much superior to Italy and thus deserved its freedom from colonial rule. Contextualizing the Hatata within a history of anti-colonial struggle around Ethiopia also allows us to slightly predate the recuperation of this text within the history of decolonization. So to predate it to the sort of late 1930s, 1950s, before the advent of third worldism in the 1960s. In fact, it could be said that Father Giusto Durbino himself is a forerunner of the anti-racist Italian strand of thought that sought to elevate Ethiopia. He valued this old Ethiopian text so much for its intellectual importance that he made an effort to transcribe it and preserve it for future generations. Thank you.